Good afternoon and welcome to the Taurus Shack Sunday special. Um, this is where we get together, talk about some of the events of the week that was and some of the stories that slipped below the headlines. But there was so much bloody news this week. It was just, uh, please slow it down. We, we, we all need a few days off. Um, Martin, how are you keeping? Not too bad, Tony. I just want to remind everybody, 10 days from now, 10 days, the 10th of next month, we are in the Sugar Club Live. So get your tickets. Don't be slow about it. Um, i got to be honest with you. I'm trying to restrict the numbers because of what's happening with COVID. So, yeah, the, the, we, so get in fast. We've had, we've, I just think fair is fair. We have to, we, we can't, um, but it, fully, it should be fully seated. It should be fully seated, table service, and go from there. And that's the, that's the way we're looking at it. Um, we are joined by uh, Sinn Féin TD, Rita Cronin, and uh, our regular contributor and, and friend and writer and advocate, Emma D'Souza. And Emma, I'd like to go to you first, if you don't mind, um, because you've had a, a, it's always an interesting time, but there's, there's two things I'd like to pick up on, first of all. One is the the poll that showed there's actually overwhelming support for the protocol now, um, which you know runs contrary to much of the coverage we read about you know it has to go uh, and then somebody we might talk about some of the the, the the forums because i don't know if you heard our conversation this week with sam McElwain, who contributes regularly enough but he talks about some of the cross-border stuff and and doesn't feel that this that these things are happening but you actually sat on one this week we might we might touch on that in a minute but and go straight to the um protocol if you don't mind and give us a sense of that yeah, well, as you were saying there, Tony, yeah, there's a new poll out uh, this week from Queen's. Um, and this poll, uh, it's been conducted every few months. So there was one back in June there as well. And back in June, it showed um, people being really divided when it came to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that has now shifted. We're seeing a significant shift in those who now see the protocol as a good thing for Northern Ireland. And the majority now supporting the protocol um, in that fashion. So it really does sort of push back against this narrative that is being peddled out by some within unionism and also then, of course, the British government, who frankly are just using um, everything to do with Northern Ireland and the peace process, the Northern Ireland Protocol, as a means to continue their forever war with the EU. You know, we are just but a pawn in their game. Um, and really, you could see that evidenced from the fact that uh, Lord Frost was again this week talking about pulling um, the Article 16 trigger, and there's no support for that in Northern Ireland. So it really is a case of, um, once again, the majority of the people of Northern Ireland's wishes and desires being negated in the name of uh, politics over in Westminster. And not only that, uh, Emma, but it's also a case that, that we're looking at um, a meeting happened in the last couple of weeks between the the, the heads of the the three main um, unionist parties, and they're they're going on a, on an election footing. They they really well, have decided. Yeah, this I mean, the, the... that's what it is, you know. So we really have to see it through that lens. Is much of the rhetoric coming out from the unionist parties is due to the fact that we really see unionism being fractured at the moment uh, in the north. We have three main parties uh, all with shrinking bases, uh, cognizant of the fact that they're going into an election where it is is deemed highly likely that they will continue to lose seats or at least their vote share will continue to decrease as it has done in 2017 and again in 2019. So they're they're operating with this fear, I suppose, of continuing to lose uh, seats in uh, Stormont. And that's causing them to all sort of fight among themselves. And we see them all sort of shifting, I suppose, even further right, aligning themselves closer and closer with, I suppose, Jim Allister's TUV than trying to find a more liberal space. And I know some will come in and say that, uh, you know, Doug Beattie's UUP is trying to fill a more liberal, progressive unionist space. But I suppose his positioning with the DUP and TUV on the Northern Ireland Protocol undercuts that message, undercuts that uh, argument that they're trying to make. And the more that the UUP align themselves with the DUP and the TUV, the harder it is for anyone to discern any difference between the three of them. And so I think we'll, what we'll really see is, I suppose, the Alliance Party eating up that vote share. And for business, the protocol has shown that it's very successful for business. A lot of businesses are very happy with it. So at this stage, being against the protocol is conceivably considered being anti-business. Well, we are seeing businesses come out and become more and more vocal in terms of the benefits of the protocol. Uh, and cer certainly the increase in north-south trade has been really substantial over the first 
uh, nine months of this year. And you'll also see from some of the um, surveys and polls being done, for example, with manufacturing NI, the majority of manufacturers do want to see the protocol stay, that they do see it as an opportunity. There are some issues that could do with mitigations that can be uh, improved in terms of making it easier for businesses to continue with trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But certainly it's a huge opportunity. And I think the more we see rhetoric coming out from unionist parties and from Westminster, the more businesses are starting to come out now and say, well, hold on a second, actually, this is good for our business. And we'll continue to continue to see that grow. And I think that might be behind, I suppose, the shift in public now saying, look, this is a good thing because the, the narrative is changing a little bit. Yeah, the, the, there is a, there is certainly an idea that people can they can judge. They, they, they've been asked to ignore the evidence of their own eyes, Emma. And when they look with, with their own eyes, they can see and uh, they can look across the, the, the short hop and skip across the across the water and say, yeah, no, I don't want some of the things that, that, that are attached to this. Now, I do need to move on because Kieran Cuff, has, the Green Party MEP, has joined us from the COP26 meeting in Glasgow. Um, Kieran, can you hear us? It's it's good to join you. Sorry, I'm just uh, having some technological glitches, but I think I am with you now. Uh, we have uh, you clear from the from the COP26 here in Glasgow. So good morning. Thanks, Kieran. Well, afternoon as it is now, my friend. But it's it's good. It's good. It's good to see you. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Kieran. You made your way. You, you did the you did the train and uh, across the Eurostar and up you went. Can you give us a sense, if you don't mind, first of all, of what the mood is in terms of is there optimism on the ground on the basis? And I'm going to frame this in a negative way, and you can tell me why I'm wrong because you know it, it appears Joe Biden has arrived with hopes rather than legislation and. Uh, the the Chinese government have decided they're not really actually going to send anyone in, in many ways. Well, look, I, I think there is always a sense of hope uh, at any COP, and some of them result in uh, success, some of them result in failure. Um, but look, having been involved in environmental politics for 40 years, about once a decade, a decade you see this wave of enthusiasm for the environmental agenda. And we've seen that peaking in Ireland and globally over the last maybe two years. Uh, and I think this time it's different because I think we understand the science a lot better than we ever did before. And that's feeding into policy making. And even if we don't see China uh, China here at COP, and maybe they'll come in the last few days rather than at the beginning, I think Europe is moving and Europe is taking the initiative to cut our greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. I would argue that's not enough. But by gosh, compared to the rest of the world, it's an extraordinary step forward. And it's something that was unthinkable three, four or five years ago. So there's got to be a sense of hope and a sense of enthusiasm. I mean, I was queuing in the rain outside here in Glasgow to get into the venue. And you have people who've come from all over the world. They are hoping that they see uh, action uh, at the COP. And I think it's not just it's not just, you know, that headline issue of reducing the greenhouse gas emissions. It's also about a just transition. It's about helping the developing world to uh, to embed climate action into the development policies that they're pursuing. So it's not just enough for the richer countries like Ireland to cut our emissions. We've got to help other countries onto a clean development path and do it fast. I want to come in on that because I think it's really important. The G20 have obviously done their deal in terms of, you know, they they, they announced that the minimum global corporation tax was done yesterday. Um, developing countries have said that this is not actually a good deal for them. Okay. And now we see the G20 are saying that, you know, that they're going to go to cut emissions. And we know that developing countries need actually to be able to be allowed, allow their economy grow. And we need yeah. to support them in, in a different way. I I put it to you that if we bake in, like it's, it's, I can't say it, it is great that we're talking about 50 to 52% uh, of reduction. It is. There's no question about that as an EU point of view. Ireland's only looking at 30%, Karen. Um, are we being under ambitious? Where we're looking at 51% from 2018 to 2030. And oh, yeah, but, but everybody else is taking the, the, the benchmark at 2005. Um, but if you look at our 1990 to 2030 commit, uh, uh, reductions, they're big. And actually, if you compare the average of what the 27 EU member states are doing over the next nine years, we're matching that and maybe going 
uh, beyond it. Tony, it's an enormously big deal. And as you know, from the kind of debate uh, around agriculture, the kind of debate around transportation, it's it's enormous. Now, look, 10 years ago, the Green Party had a bill that would reduce emissions by two and a half percent a year. We've now upped that to seven percent. And I'd be the first to admit it's not as enough. Uh, it's not in line with what science demands. But to be brutally honest, to get Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to commit to the kind of targets that we see is an enormous step forward. Sorry for interrupting the podcast, but this is one of those moments where I actually have to ask you, the listener, to help us keep these things going. Reboot Republic, Echo Chamber, Tortoise Shack itself is one platform that tries to have those conversations that you might not hear, or if you do hear, you don't hear them in the long form detail that we like to bring to the public. I think the work matters. I know we've helped shape conversations and I know it has a value, but that value has to unfortunately be met by some sort of financial um, recompense because we've bills to pay. It's as simple as that. This this is not self-sustaining. We don't have ads. We don't have sponsors. And to be honest with you, most people probably don't aren't too keen on a left-leaning um, podcast network anyway. But the work matters. Um, and so many people tell me that. I get so many messages every week about how they've been informed by something, entertained by something, or had their opinions challenged by something. So if you're one of those people and you're listening now, help us it's it's a it's a it's a pint a month it's it's a co- fancy coffee a month it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise it helps us keep going and i'd really appreciate if you put your hand in your pocket and joined us thank you again to give to say absolutely but again we're, we're sitting here the the u.s um, actually, it was Joe Biden. <laughs> he's really become Comrade Joe in the last few weeks where he's talking about, you know, helping the developing nations and one steady, steady, Tony. But, but he's lost out. He has. So he has this huge deal that he wanted to put through the stimulus package. And he's protected in that. That's the, the climate action parts. That's the budget that he's got. You know, the, 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 the four trillion package that he was told yeah. was too much. He's actually said, well, the only thing you won't take out of it is the, is the climate spending. Are the EU willing to spend the money that needs to be spent over? over this period, Kieran? You know, yes is the short answer. And an awful lot of the rows that I have in the European Parliament over the last two years have been out uh, uh, about exactly that. For instance, we have a fund called the Connecting Europe Facility, and I can see your eyes glaze over already, but the CEF or the Connecting Europe Facility is 32 billion of, of money. And the kind of the background or the, the, the backroom arguments I've had are, can we get that from 50 to 60 to 65% climate funding? Put it in practical terms, it means spending more money on railways than motorways. It means spending more money on green hydrogen than on fossil gas. And that that's, is happening within Europe. And every, day, every time I wake up and say we're not moving fast enough or, or in a more radical, in 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 to the extent that's needed, people say, you should have been here five years ago. What we're doing now is unthinkable compared to half a decade ago. So I think the EU is on board. We need to get other countries on board. And as you know very well, before we start to admonish China, we've got to realize that a huge amount of China's carbon footprint is coming from the stuff that they're sending to us that we're using. So actually, even though the Irish carbon footprint is amongst the highest in Europe, that doesn't even take into account the emissions from the stuff we use that's manufactured in China. But without China at the table, without China there, it's 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 impossible to move forward without China. You have to have China at the table. There's just simply no doubt about that. There'll always be countries who don't sign up, and one of the most. I, I, but China, things- but China is is unique in its size. It's the size of China that makes it so important. Absolutely, but the magical thing about China is that they can change their policies at a moment's notice. They have five year plans, which have kind of gone out of fashion in most of the developing world since uh, the developed world. Marx had a five-year plan, you know. (laughs) I I know he did. And and China is one of the few countries that still has them. And the great thing about that is if you don't like a five-year plan, you can change it. And look, I've I've traveled to China. I've I've taught there. And I I was 
I was working in a, in a university on the edge of Beijing, out on the seventh ring road. And they said to me four years ago, they said, oh, well, the metro will be here in 2021. And the metro's there in 2021. So the beauty of a five-year plan is, A, you tend to deliver it, and B, you can change it. And China has backed two horses. They've backed the clean technology horse of wind energy and photovoltaics. They've also backed the coal horse. But if they, if they see the rest of the world changing, they can change too. And the kind of policy measures we're putting in place in Europe, something called CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. And that says to China, listen, folks, if you're producing high carbon products, we're actually going to tax you at the point of entry. So actually, even though the European Union is only 10% of the global problem of greenhouse gas emissions, we actually have a lot more policy clout than you might realize. And, and the point I was going to make at the very start is, There'll always be countries that aren't on board. The, the, the funny thing about the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Conference of the Parties is decisions are arrived at by consensus. And when I was in Cancun 10 years ago, we almost had consensus, but Iran, Iraq and Venezuela wouldn't sign up. And the chair, I think it was um, uh, Figueres, uh, the Mexican uh, head, head uh, chair of the climate uh, conference, she just banged her gavel down and said, you know, consensus is about getting almost everybody on board, but not every single person on board. Uh, okay. oh. And we had a deal at Cancun. I think in the same way here, we might not get China on board, but they're diplomats and they're pragmatists. But, and if but, they but, see but, a movement I, towards I, I, I kind of have to come in, Karen, change, it'll because happen. on consensus, and it's important, on consensus, CETA flies in the face of that. Absolutely flies in the face of that. I mean, we, we as a country can have targets that we want to work to, but once we sign up to the investor courts, if we, if they can then go around us and ignore us. So there's no consensus in that. It's just the two don't marry. The two don't match. I, I think we need action and we need change on international trade treaties, but it's not just CETA. It's TTIP. It's Mercosur. It's the energy charter treaty. And I do see a shift in Brussels. I see an understanding, as you say yourself, that we cannot meet climate goals unless we radically reform the way we do trade. I think we have to be careful, though, that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you're growing up in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro, you need hope, you need employment, you need economic development. But you that need has that. To be you fair. need that in in parts of Ireland as well, and and I do yeah. feel that that's quite overlooked. There are parts of Ireland, and there are people in Ireland who are living in the exact same deprivation as people in the favelas. And I think unless you take that into consideration in Ireland, it's easy to say we need to improve the lives of people in third. But you also need to improve the lives of people here in this country. And what the carbon tax oh, is Mark, doing Mark, at this Mark, present Mark. moment I is penalising particularly this winter, the poorest people in this country. It actually is because of obviously but, the growth in, in things. But no, I want to comment on, on that. There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between um, our levels of deprivation, Martin, and the levels of deprivation in, in, in the favelas in Brazil. I'm sorry, there just is. But, but I think a person Martin, living no, on no, the street, Tony, no, I, is just as deprived. I'm not saying... No, I'm no, just, uh, yeah, yeah, Martin, I actually have to disagree with you because if you have a severe medical uh, issue in the favelas of uh, of Rio, you're in difficulty. In Ireland, there is a health service. We might not like, like aspects of that. We have a huge problem with waiting lists, but there are extraordinary resources available there. I, I ha have a, a, a friend who has motor neuron disease, and the assistance from the HSE has been extraordinary. And in fact, a colleague, a colleague of his from the USA came here and was bowled over by the assistance that was coming from the HSE, from the Irish Health Service. To Karen, I, I'm conscious, Karen, I'm disease. conscious of time. Can I just ask one thing? And it's, it is goes to Martin's point, and I just put it, I'll put it to you differently. The idea then you're saying support the, support the developing world, and we talk about a just transition. When we see some of the policies that have been put in place, that's where we're really going to struggle because there does seem to be a, an element within some of the decisions that have been made that they haven't been class-proofed. And that would be my 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 take on it, Kieran. And I just feel that that there's just there's not enough people at the table 
who speak from different communities, whether that be in Ireland or in, in the poorer communities across the EU or, or elsewhere. And that would be my issue. And I, I, I you're, you're at the COP26 yeah. and you're going to see this. And then we see this the G20. You actually made, your, made the point earlier. When it happens with the UN, it happens with consensus. The, the G20 is not, I would argue, I would argue the G20 is anti-democratic. It's, it's a rich, rich clubs. Uh, it's a rich boys club for the most part. Uh, and look, uh, even the European Parliament and its 705 uh, members, we tend towards being uh, old, older, wealthier uh, and male. Uh, so I think every day you have to check your privilege uh, in this in, in the institution that I'm in. And I think that happens in Europe and it happens at home as well. What I would say is that within the kind of the 16 pieces of legislation that we're bringing through over the next two years, to bring this 55% reduction. There is a European Social Fund, there is a Just Transition Fund, and there is a huge amount of debate of what are we actually offering somebody whose job in a coal mine in Poland might come to an end? What are we offering to a Bordnemona worker in the Midlands, maybe the same age as myself in their late 50s? They're not going to magically overnight become a kind of a, a building retrofit technology expert. They don't have the skill set and they don't want to make that radical move. So I think in every policy move that we make, we have to be we have to think about what the impact is on uh, on every part of society, whether it be in Ireland or in the rest of the world. And I think it puts enormous pressure on us to try and just transition proof the measures that we're implementing. Hey, Kieran, I, I thank you for taking the time on this. Um, is, does uh, Emma or Rita have any comment? Or are, we, are we? Sorry, Rita, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, well, um, I'm actually a member of the um, Arapis Climate, Climate Committee on uh, climate, climate Action. And uh, you know, this is, you know, we really have to take the climate emergency very seriously. But um, Kieran there at, at, the, at the COP, and, you know, a lot of people don't know that the COP even stands for the Conference of Parties. And it's really important, like the most important party that, that should be included, can often feel excluded, even by the language that's used, that's used um, at, at these conferences. You know, and I mean, I'm talking about the public. Um, you know, we, we, all, we all agree. We agree on the targets. We just, Sinn Féin disagrees on how we're going to get there. Um, you know, I was saying I was a member of the Iraq Climate Committee. I've always had an interest in climate change and always from the point of view of doing what I'm told um, saying, what do I do? And, you know, separate my waste and uh, walk when I can, all that kind of thing, use public transport when I can, encourage the kids to use public transport. But um, my comrade uh, on the Climate Committee as well in Boylan, Central in Boylan, you know, she always points to how the, the hole in the ozone layer, it wasn't tackled by consumer choice our individual behaviour, it was tackled by strong legislation and protocols and, you know, a timely ban on the use of CFCs in production. And we really need equally strong legislation now too, to reduce emissions and achieve a just transition because Sinn Féin won't stand over a two-speed society where one area of society, one cohort, is coping with, with climate change by, um, you know, their, their EVs, uh, solar panels, heat pumps, insulation, and another cohort, and a much a much larger cohort, unable to turn the heat on for their children in the winter. You know, I have met several. I've when I when I'm going to visit constituents, I have gone into the homes of people who still have their coats on at five o'clock because they're waiting until six o'clock to put the heat on. And you're you're absolutely right, Rita. And one of the files I've been working on over the last two years is on something called the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, what we call the Renovation Wave. And basically, we want to bring the 220 million homes in Europe up to an A energy rating by the year 2050. That's a massive 30-year project. And I've constantly argued that we have to start with public housing. We have to start by, it's no use giving people the fuel allowance every year if we simply aren't doing anything about the poor quality of the home that they live in. And that's why we've seen, I think, 55 million euro go into upgrading public housing this year. That'll only upgrade about 3% of it. We should be upgrading about 10% a year. So an argument I'm making in Europe and at home is that the renovation wave has to start with social housing, with public housing and voluntary housing. And if we can give people 
warm and cozy homes. That tackles fuel poverty. It gives people more in their pocket at the end of the day. And I think it's a real win-win. It reduces greenhouse gas emissions, but it can really help people. And as you say yourself, you know, the likes of myself can put the solar panels on. The likes of myself can think about putting in a heat pump. But for a huge amount of people struggling to pay an energy bill at the end of the month, we need to improve their homes and we need to do it sooner this rather isn't than a, later. This isn't the segue I was I was imagining. But Emma, you've been working with the... Um, on, on the on the All Island Women's Forum, and one of the things you've looked at in terms of this, in terms of poverty, is poverty as a form of violence. And when we hear about you know people being left behind and being afraid to turn off the, turn off the heating, all this very much tarries with that because good housing policy is good climate policy is good po- is good poverty reduction policy. Surely, uh, Emma. Yeah. Well, in the first instance, I think it's important to note that uh, you know we need to, I suppose. There was, a, there was a poll recently there in the Irish Times about two weeks ago that showed a significant disconnect between the measures that are needed in order to achieve these targets and the public buy-in to these measures. So I think in the first instance in this conversation that there needs to really be an effort made on ensuring that we're bringing society along with us on this journey. It's all well and good talking about legislative measures and what's going to be done. But there is, from what you can see, I suppose, a disconnect in the cost that it will actually have on people and how they will be protected and what carbon neutrality will really take in terms of across Irish society. And then on the other point around the All-Eyed Women's Forum, uh, we are looking at uh, poverty as a form of violence as part of our November meeting because we're looking at doing an event specifically around the elimination of uh, violence against women and girls. And that we do need to take a look at ter- in terms of uh, looking how poverty does actually affect people in this way, that it is a form of violence um, and that it, it significantly affects people across I- across the island, north and south. And in particular, I suppose, around some of the uh, border counties where there are still severe levels of deprivation, where they have, I suppose, been left behind or abandoned uh, over the last hundred years. And a lot of the areas that I suppose were at the forefront of the troubles still remain steeped in deprivation. And the All Out Women's Forum is taking a particular look at that to see what we can do in terms of highlighting this as a systemic issue across the island. Um, th- thanks for that. I, Kieran. Um, I know, I, look, I, if you can hold on, it'd be great. And if you need to get on, I get that you're at, the, at this event, but I, we need to go to Rita because yesterday, Rita, you were at the Ardesh and uh, Mary Lou took her feet. She made a very impressive speech. Um, and I don't give credit very often for some of these things, but nonetheless, um, she she made her speech. But I put it to you uh, again. Um, conflict with a small C, C Rita Cronin, because uh, she said time for change. And this was the hashtag. But some of the stuff she said sounded very much like the status quo to me. Um, we see the, the movements yesterday on the special criminal court and we see the movements where Sinn Féin abstained on the, the vote. But nonetheless, over a third of people now, when consistently in polls, seem to be moving towards Sinn Féin vote. What did you take away from that? And do you, um, do you think I'm barking up the wrong tree when I say uh, it's not it's not just going to be more of the same? I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know if you tuned in to the, to the Ardesh on the Groves, but... Um, I'm calling you your surname, that's a bad time. Uh, I don't know if you tuned in, but um, it was absolutely about change. It was certainly not, you know, we are not defenders of the status quo. Sinn Féin will never, will never be that. Um, we did have the motion of the Special Criminal Court um, in the general election, around the time of the general election in 2020, we called for a review of the um, emergency powers and the operation of the Special Criminal Court. Um, that review was established and it's going to report next spring. Now, we did make a submission to that, and the motion, which I have here with me, um, it, it pretty much outlines what our submission was. Um, you know, we, we reject the Special Criminal Court and the Offences Against the State Act, and I think that anybody, any solicitor, any barrister, any person who has any kind of a moral core would, would, disagree with it, would disagree with the Special Criminal Court as it is currently constituents and you know I have no I would make no apologies for that. Um, what we do have though is we have we have to get a special criminal justice system which actually reflects the 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 crime 21st century crime <clears throat> and that's that's what our motion was about. 
And that, that motion gives us a chance now to engage in the review and to um, make sure that it is completely human rights compliant. And can I ask, you know, I am one of those who believes that we don't need a special criminal court. It was a temporary measure that has been there 40 years plus, and it's not good for your justice system to have non-jury courts. Is what Sinn Féin's proposing a form of non-jury court? <clears throat> no, it is. But have you seen the motion? I, I've, read, I've, read, I've read the motion, um, Rita, and I, again, it's hard to read the motion and say, oh, that doesn't sound, that sounds reasonable, that sounds fair, that sounds, but when you read it and then you see, um, are, we, are we on the slippery slope? Because as Martin points out, the Special Criminal Court was a temporary me- measure in the middle of what, you know, what was called the Troubles that was, that was brought in 50 years ago and, and is now used as, um, it was something that Sinn Féin, whether you uh, were stood in, in harmony with the likes of Amnesty International and Human Rights. Um, and, and many uh, other political parties in Ireland as well. Absolutely. And, and then to see this, I mean, I, I'm hearing arguments now um, that it can be that we can, you know, there are criminal gangs operating, and this is the way to to, to deal with it. I I I think there are other jurisdictions who do that differently that can protect jurors and protect them in different ways. And I don't I don't know if the solution is there is is purely on let's remove the let's remove the um, juror element in that. I mean, Emma, I, um, I don't know if you want to that, comment that on it be, at all. But go on be, it. Sorry, that would only be as a last resort. Um, that would be only in circumstances where the the DPP would have to demonstrate that a that an anonymized jury you know couldn't go ahead due to intimidation or interference. Um, you know the non-jury would be an absolute last resort. Um, first of all, we're looking at and we've all learned through COVID. We're here on Zoom. We're, we're not all sitting in your in your front room there in the little island in Glasnevin. But um, you know we we can have anonymized juries. Um, we can have we can protect. Juries. And I always felt that, you know, a government that can't protect its juries is is, is a failure. But uh, the the United Nations Committee on Human Rights does state that trying of civilians in non-jury courts should be exceptional. And that's that's what we would be looking for. That it would be only in exceptional circumstances. What we really need now is we need, there's no oversight at the moment to, to what happens at the moment. The DPP makes the decision without any oversight and they... And remember that it's also the DPP who are also responsible for prosecuting a case in the Special Criminal Court. So, you know, they should not be the ones who are making that decision. And that would be a big reform of the Special Criminal Court. You know, okay. we have different courts. We have the Children's Court, we have the Family Law Court, we have the District Court, you know, the Circuit Court. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a Special Criminal Court to deal with special criminals because... And I feel sometimes, and I really want to be careful about how I say this, but, you know, I'm not worried about my children being used as <clears throat> mule to, to to run drugs. But there are areas, uh, deprived areas in, in Ireland where parents are worried about that um, in areas of deprivation. And, you know, we do we do have to tackle the particular circumstances that are there at the moment in the in the in crime. I'm just going to move on a little, Rita, and it's been widely reported that when we look at the, the Sinn Féin Ardèche, that what we're looking at is is ministers in waiting, a government in waiting. Yes. Do you get that sense from it? I absolutely, I, I do. Um, I get it when I, you know, I've been back out and, and meeting people, you know, look, we've had a very mild um, start to autumn. And I'm meeting people out, out, you know, in their gardens, doing their tidy up. And I am absolutely getting the change. I'm also getting the change from departments that I'm dealing with. Um, I think that everybody realises that, you know, Sinn Féin is going to be part of the next government. And, you know, I own a brain is the next housing, Minister for Housing, in waiting, Pierce Doherty, Mairead Farrell. What, what do you Louise think, Emma? Because it's the same now up north, as we've said, we've seen a, a shrinkage on the unionist side. Do we see uh, Sinn Féin holding reins of power north and south? Well, I think the first test of the significant polling we've seen over the past, I suppose, 12 to 18 months around Sinn Féin's lead in the polls will be the Assembly election here in Northern Ireland, which all being well will be next May and not sooner, uh, unless Jeffrey Donaldson gets his <laughs> they're way. Pu- they're pushing for January, February. <laughs> Um, but um, 
so that will be the first real test of Sinn Féin's current polling. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there are predictions that they will do well in the election here. But one um, issue that I would flag, I suppose, was the abstaining of a vote uh, on a DUP's bill to restrict abortion access. And there was quite a bit of backlash here in the North around Sinn Féin's positioning on that vote. And I think that, um, I suppose, the position there undercuts a little bit the message of change, because if it is really going to be pro progressive policies that are based around human rights, well, that also has to include uh, a woman's right to be able to access abortion services. So I think that in particular could be an issue for Sinn Féin in the election. I, I, can I say on that, I asked um, the leader of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou MacDonald, in the first case about this last early last last April, Martin. Yeah, almost a year ago, Tony. And she she told me that, you know, that this was there was um, one of the bills needed to be de dealt with at, at executive and that they were going to continue and had been putting pressure on. So the abstention was very deeply disappointing. Um, I'm conscious. I'm very conscious of time. I will read. I will let you come in on that. But I do want to say one thing on on uh what the week that was and actually karen it's 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 actually it's happenstance that you have that you were here because you you are a, a resident of the area um and events in stony batter this week in terms of the eviction that that took place uh, uh or attempted eviction that took place I, I i'd be interested to get your insights because again if you recall, I go back to a 2018. I was in the building. I was in North Frederick Street with Take Back the City. We were recording the podcast like Egypts, um, and and we got ourselves into into, into a spot of bother and many a time. But but it's not healthy to watch Gardi effectively organize an escort. I put it to you for private security in in an area like that that's been allowed to go derelict on the basis of its gentrification via der dereliction, Kieran. Yeah, I, I think nobody likes those images of a private security personnel and the guards trying, uh, well, facilitating their their exit from the area. So, but my heart goes out to the guards because I think they're trying to do a very tough job to um, ensure nobody gets hurt in those circumstances. But look, the bigger issue there is a building and a very large site. Uh, that has been empty in the 20 years that I've lived in uh, Stony Batter. And I think it goes down to, it comes, it all comes back to Irish governments, successive Irish governments that give extraordinary property rights uh, and without recognizing social obligations. And, I, you know, for most of the last 30 years, I've been a city councillor. And in city, Dublin City Hall, there's a statue of Thomas Drummond and inscribed on it, it says property has its duties as well as rights. And I think in Ireland, we have tended uh, to uh, vindicate the property rights, but not the duties. And if you look at other jurisdictions like Germany or indeed Italy, um, there's been a long history of allowing vacant buildings to be peacefully occupied. And yet in Ireland, where we have hundreds of thousands of buildings that are empty, many, many of those sit empty for decades. A lot of them are in private ownership. A lot of them are in state ownership. But there is a huge amount of empty space in Stony Batter and surroundings where some people are, are just waiting for the hope value That's, to increase yeah. uh, the, the value of the property. Others uh, are state actors like the OPW who are sitting on boarded up buildings in Stony Batter or in Smithfield since the last century. We, so we I think we need stronger legislation to allow empty buildings to be occupied by those who need the space, whether it's a roof over their head or whether it's social uses, we should be making that more explicit in our laws. Myself and Tony were only discussing this, and I, and I suppose Stony Batter is a great area to look at this. I myself lived in Stony Batter, worked on Prussia Street, so I know the area quite well. And 25 years ago when I lived there, it was a working class area. It was, and I'm pretty sure, Kieran, when you moved into it, it was. But over the 20 years, it has dereliction has been used to gentrify the area and it's yeah. gentrification through dereliction and it has changed the face of the city and it is changing the face of the city right across the city but these are policies that are pursued by government but it is leaving the people of dublin with a hollowed out city so how do we prevent that i i think um 
you know, it's important to say as well that we're seeing a new university being built in Stony Batter. TU Dublin, uh, the work at Grange Gorman is absolutely extraordinary. And that is going to have a knock-on impact on the sites around it. And that particular site is right beside TU Dublin. And look, it's going to change. It's obviously not going to be uh, an empty site with a second-hand car dealer uh, forever. It's going to change. It's going to be developed. But I think we can do this development better. And I think we've got to make sure that we have a much stronger element of public housing in these plans. When I look at public housing plans in the northwest inner city, I see one scheme underway in on North King Street that all that's almost completed, but it's taken us six years to get there. I see another scheme at O'Devony Gardens where we've been arguing the toss for over 20 years. Karen, Karen, about, please about don't mention, the, please don't. Uh, the new deal for O'Devony, we do not want that as a template for what we're doing. It's yeah. it's not no, value it's, for money. It's, no, I agree. It's not it's not a good deal. Look, I think the problem there is that both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael want to give a much larger proportion of any site over to private housing. And look, I've been to Vienna for the at the Housing for All conference. I've seen what the city of Vienna has done with over a hundred years of commitment from the red Vienna in the 1920s and 30s to the red and green Vienna now. We need much greater state involvement in the provision of public housing at a price that people can afford. Absolutely. I don't think Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil get that argument. I, I think uh, they see and, the and, argument, and, and, and I know, I, and, I, and I actually think, in, again, I'm not trying to give credit here, but I do think Sinn Féin understand that, whether that means that they understand that when they take the reins of power and you see the the pushback like you saw in the article by by um Killian Woods this morning the Sunday Business Post that revealed the Department of Finance losing their minds because the ESRI said we could spend more on on housing it's 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 embarrassing because you're also arguing against the permanent government and I just yeah. want to ask one question of Emma if you want and, and Karen I appreciate you staying on I know I know you're you're under time pressure I, I, so, I am indeed so if yeah. you want if you want to shoot off absolutely I, do I might leave you and listen thanks very much for for no, having me all no, I, no, I, I not it at all. Thanks, Kieran. Uh, Emma, can I ask one question of you on this? We we consistently get um, these conversations we're ha- we're having about housing, about climate, about health, and yet in in the NI, in NI or in the North or whatever phraseology you want to put at it, we want to talk about those things, and we're still talked. We're, we're still I said, well, actually, can we just talk through the through the lenses of green or orange, please? It's it's just I saw it again this week, and that's. It must be ultimately, is it a failure of media, a failure of political leadership, or is it just laziness? I think it's a, a combination. It's a combination of the media absolutely have a part to play in terms of how the North is depicted. I think it's um, part to do with the political parties in terms of how they uh, position themselves and especially unionism, who really only know seem to know one way to go about it, which is to really um, pit sides against each other. All this narrative around the fact that uh, none of the unionist parties will confirm if they will take the position of deputy first minister, if there is a, uh, a Sinn Féin first minister or a nationalist first minister is absolutely ludicrous because really what they're saying is they won't accept the terms of democracy if people actually um, come out and elect a Sinn Féin first minister. So there is, I think, a, a significant role with the parties in this, but there's also... Um, I suppose, outdated and lazy perceptions within society of Northern Ireland as well, in terms of where we are as a society now. There is, um, at times, you will see, I suppose, an othering of the North um, from the South. We see that in some things around um, whenever there was the programme for government. Uh, there were some within the Green Party um, in the South who were very upset at the idea that uh, those in the North who are Green Party members would have a say in the programme for government. And we see it, I suppose, in the uh, conversations around the shift towards a unity referendum, that quite uh, outdated and lazy perceptions of Northern Ireland do persist and circulate across this island. And this idea that it's still, you know, orange and green, us versus them, is just not reflective. You have heard me say it time and again on this podcast but it is just not reflective of society today. We are far more diverse than that. And identity in this place is far more nuanced than many would have you believe. Thanks for that, Emma. Look, I know we're going to have to move on. And it's because we've had a really great conversation there on climate. It was a really great conversation. 
Rita, can I ask you, COVID is is the biggest issue in the country at the moment and children are due back in school this this coming week. Are you getting a sense of fear from from constituents in your area? Well, you know, the situation in schools <clears throat> at the moment is very serious and I believe a lot, a lot of board management, principals, teachers, uh, parents as well, they feel isolated. They can't get in touch with the Department um, of Education. They feel abandoned by the Department of Education. They can't get in touch with the HSE. Um, they can't sit down and talk with... with um, now, for, listen, you know, the changes that, that came in around self-isolation that was that was expected, you know, for children with no symptoms and who had negative tests were being forced to stay at home for two weeks, and like that was completely very disruptive to the to their education. But removing contact tracing and, in particular, the risk assessments was a bit of a shock because families with uh, vulnerable family members at home, vulnerable children, you know, elderly grandparents, whatever, parents with underlying conditions. You know, they, they're well able to make their own risk assessments. So um, <clears throat> when, when the Minister brought these changes in, when Minister Foley brought these changes in, she said she'd keep it under review. But if there's one thing that the government, they haven't got much right, but they are experts on finding the middle ground for you know, keeping nobody happy. Um, I think Minister Foley, um, Minister Donnelly, they need to get back onto their efforts. They need to make sure that schools can you know, retain access to the public health teams, um, particularly around risk assessments and contact tracing. Um, I'm not a public health expert, but I think we all think we are after the last 18 months. We all we involved in um, keeping up to date on this. I'm, I'm next door to Donald O'Leary, our um, education spokesperson. He has been trying to get a meeting with NEFET and he hasn't even got a response to them. He's tried several times to get a I'd, I'd go. I'd go one further. The the likes of Orla Haggard, who talks about the mitigation and the environmental issues. I brought that up. Yeah. I brought that up this week with Dahl, and you know, I was going to bring it up, and it's it's really hard to interrupt on Zoom, isn't it? Yeah. Um, when when Kieran was talking about the the buildings directive, <coughs> excuse me, I asked him, Dahl, why don't they bring that in for schools immediately? Because children need to be studying in you know warm conditions. We need to be getting warm clean ventilation to the air into the schools. And I really think, and I know I'm sure that Martin agrees with me here, that if we spent half as much time talking about how to keep children safe during COVID and um, make sure that children were still able to go to school and engage in their outdoor activities or whatever and you know, in a well-ventilated area, as we spent on trying to open up pubs and getting people into pubs and consuming alcohol, I think that's a very good point, Rita. And I think yeah. we're going, I think, Tony, we all feel that we're going back but to we're some going sort. To have to, we're going to have to upgrade the schools anyway. We have The government has agreed with the EU that they're going to do that. Why don't we do that now? Why don't we start with that? Keep our children, we don't know the risks of long COVID. You know, we have to, our children are unvaccinated. They're the only cohort that are unvaccinated at the moment. We absolutely have to make sure that we're, that, 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 um, as next representative, that we're, that we're standing up for them. Tony, we, we all, I think, feel that some sort of former restrictions are going to creep back in. Um, it may just be the case that we won't be able to open nightclubs and keep schools open at the same time. And it's about prioritising now, really, isn't it? Look, it's it's been... I don't know if it, there's no priorities. I, I I'm one of I'm a person who believes you can do two things at once, Martin. I think you can make schools safe while mitigating factors in other areas. But I, like as Jana Jana, who's pointed out in the comments, you know that uh, that school teachers have been asked, you know, to work with unvaccinated people, um, you know, up like thirty unvaccinated people for six hours a day right in front of you. I mean, that's what we're asking of people. And now I've seen, I think it's in the US, they're hoping in the next week or two to start vaccinating people between the ages of five and 12. But we also see that these strains are getting more, um, they're less virulent, but more resistant, if that makes sense. Um, so we talk to people and we, and we worry about what, what it means, but it also means that we we we're, we're we are living with this thing now. Whether that's just because yeah. that's not the actual stated policy, we are living with it now, Rita. Yeah, and uh, you know, Emma Emma touched on it there briefly as well around partition. Um, there's no doubt that both jurisdictions on this island were were working with one arm tied behind their back. And um, they're saying that 
particularly with climate change, as we were talking about earlier, that there can be, there is likely going to be more pandemics. You know, we have to, you know, unite our countries so that we're not both, we're not acting with two arms tied behind our backs and that we, you know, we do have to look at partition as well because we were very much, we needed an all-island approach both sides of the border and we didn't have it. Um, so, Tony, we have to prepare for that. Tony, back to you. Anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap this up? You're on mute. Realistically, we've we've kept people we've kept people long enough. But I uh, look, I I do think that um that that this is this is only going to be something that we're we're facing into. But I I'm glad Kieran joined us. Fair play to him. He knows uh, he never gets an easy reception here, but he continues to join us. I think it's easier for him. I think it's good that he does it. And I'm and I'm actually want to be hopeful that something does emerge from that, Martin. I know what you're saying. But I hate the idea of that just because China isn't there, that we won't all try. It has, we have to try. Um, I do, if I could, Emma, if I come to you for one last thing around COVID, if you don't mind before we wrap, there, the, Health services will, will always be this thing that when we realistically do talk about a shared island, the United Ireland, that if we can't make that work, we can't, we can't make it work at all. And at the moment, you know, COVID has 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 shown that maybe it's not all it's not it's not all it's all uh, cocked up to be. Well, I mean, look, there can be, um, I suppose, a tendency in some to look at the NHS service in Northern Ireland through rose tinted glasses. And look, there is an incredible benefit to having a free at the point of access health service. And it is uh, incredibly beneficial to many people. Um, across this place, but it's also over capacity, it's under resourced, it's under incredible strain. And we have the highest waiting lists in uh, the United Kingdom. And really, uh, it is buckling, you know, we see at the moment with COVID that um, many, if not all of the hospitals are operating far over capacity, that we are struggling with uh, ICU beds and capacity here as well. And there's also that compounded then with the fact that there is um, higher levels of vaccine hesitancy in the north and there is across the border. Um, I would agree there with Rita around the um, need for an all island approach. And I think that really held us back in terms of how we respond to the pandemic. And even now with there being two different sets of procedures and two different sets of restrictions on the island, I live in Fermanagh, but I work in Dublin. So I'm operating in a space with two different sets of um, restrictions. And it just it just is a, a nonsensical approach to something that is so serious. It was something that I never get my head around. And I think that um, just to throw this banner in the works too around the all-island approach, look, we're all going to be talking about the health service, um, whatever these conversations around the possibility of a referendum on the constitutional position comes up because health service and the possibility of an all-island free at the point of access health service will be one of the biggest deciding factors on whether or not this island will ever be reunified. Look, thank you very much for coming along, Emma D'Souza. Thank you, Rita Crone. We'd also like to say thank you to Kieran Cuff. We'll hang on if anybody have questions, but the recording is going to stop now. Tony, back to you, buddy. Just, yeah, we'll, we'll wrap it now. I want to plug one thing. Lads, if you're here, you, you have access to uh, David's story, a podcast we recorded with a man of a certain age who was facing eviction in the very near future.